0: We begin a new series today We're talking about discipleship next or this coming Friday this coming Saturday and next Sunday we will have a discipleship conference it'll be right here at the church we'll give you more information during the announcement time um, but everybody's invited in fact we want you to come so please come um, it'll be good for you your family to be here for each and every one of those services. We'll give you a schedule for that at the end of this service this morning. Um, I want you to imagine if I had a map up here with me of the United States today, and you had to pick the area of our country that was the hardest to pastor, what area, or if you could just maybe say one state, what state would you pick? The obvious answer is Ohio. I'm just kidding. kidding. (laughs) Um, Okay, and I would agree, most, most church members would say that. Do you know, however, that they've actually asked this of pastors in the United States of America? Pastors in the United States of America were surveyed by Barna, and the overwhelming number of pastors that said the hardest area in our country to pastor is the Bible Belt. And do you know what area within the Bible Belt is the hardest to pastor, they said, is our area. Why do you think that is? In fact, one popular pastor put it like this. The Bible Belt is the most difficult place to pastor the local church. In California, and places like it, there is rarely confusion. Either you are a Christian or you're not. In the Bible Belt, just about everyone you meet thinks they're a Christian. But they have no concept of the severity of sin, the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of even the gospel. They think that they're perfectly fine with God, and God is just as fine with them. Because they go to church once in a while, and they walk the aisle during vacation Bible school, they believe everything is good with them and the man upstairs. They believe in God, but not a God who would judge them for their sins. This is cultural Christianity. The whole country suffers from it. But it is worse here in the Bible Belt than anywhere else. Cultural Christianity is practiced by more Americans than any other religion in the country, including biblical Christianity. A famous pastor once said, The greatest mission field in the United States isn't California, it's the church. The people who practice cultural Christianity, they aren't atheists or agnostics. In fact, they would be offended if you called them those names. These are people who go to church. You may be sitting next to one, or you may be one. They believe in God. They take seriously their Christian traditions. Things like prayer in school, nativity scenes, and patriotic church services. Cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but it doesn't really think he is needed except to take the wheel in moments of crisis. The Jesus of cultural Christianity is a type of historical imaginary friend that has some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. The God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs. Can I just tell you I hate that term? The God of cultural Christianity though is the big man upstairs and whether you uh, whether or not he is holy And whether or not people have sinned against him is irrelevant. To put it bluntly, cultural Christians, they serve a God of their imagination and as such are as lost as any atheist you meet. And yet, they believe they'll go to heaven when they die. Is it possible to be a cultural Christian but not actually be a Christian? To do culturally Christian things like go to church and read your Bible to give, to pray, to live according to Christian morals, at least the morals highlighted by the Christian culture. Is that possible and then to still be lost? Not according to me, but according to Jesus, absolutely it is. According to Jesus, it isn't just possible for just a few people here or there it's possible for large groups of people, in my opinion, entire denominations of people. Jesus addressed the distant cousins of the modern day, so of us, overchurched, underreached. Can you believe I just said that? Those who were religious, but never repentant. Can I show you what Jesus said? Sermon on the Mount, famous sermon ever preached? He's wrapping it up and he says this, Matthew 7 verse 21 says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, verse 22 goes on and says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached in your name? And in your name have cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus wasn't speaking to atheists here. He wasn't speaking to agnostics here. He was speaking to church members here. He was directly describing moral, religious people doing Christian acts in the name of God. Religion was deeply embedded into their routine in their life, which gave them full confidence that their acts of righteousness built an impressive enough resume that it would give them a big payoff when they got to heaven. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Consider the list that these people give to God. God, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? May I translate it to us this morning? Didn't we say grace before dinner? Didn't we vote our values on election day? Didn't we believe prayer should be allowed in school? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we believe in God? Didn't we get misty-eyed at the singing of God bless America at a baseball game? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we get that baby baptized? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and faithful? Friend, I could go on all day. God will reveal the root of such a mindset as self-righteous. Friend, it has nothing to do with what we have done. It's all about who we know. The problem is, these people know they're religious, but they don't know the Redeemer. And they didn't even know the Redeemer in this passage standing right in front of them. And as such, they faced the judgment of God and not the blessings of God. I mean, just go back to verse number 22 for me. Verse 22 The very first word it says. Jesus uses the word many. Hear me. This is not an isolated issue. This isn't just a couple of people. Jesus is warning us, religious people, that this is a problem with many of us. This is an issue with many people listening to me preach right now. Even though these people did Christian things in his name, they'll face eternal judgment. Even though this group thought they were eternally secure, they found out too late that all they had done was empty religion. Many people, many Christian people, Many Baptist people, and hopefully not, but maybe, many central Baptist church people will be shocked to stand before Jesus someday and hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. So what does it mean to be known by Jesus? Friend, that's an eternally, eternally important question. We're going to try to answer that question today. Join me. Matthew chapter number 4. We're going to start in verse number 18. It says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw their other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Look what verse 22 says. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Let's pray. God, we love you. We pray, Lord, for our sermon today. I pray that you will impact hearts and minds. Help us set aside empty religion, cultural Christianity, Lord, and pick up faith with you. Lord, help us today to be serious about following you, Lord, just like the song says, wherever you lead. In your name I pray, amen. Verse number 19, Jesus says follow me so in order to answer the question of what does it mean to be known by Jesus let's answer two sub questions the first is who is the me in this passage surely realizing who Jesus is is essential to understanding how to follow him so what I did is, saying for this message, we were only in Matthew 4, so I went back to Matthew 1 and I looked at the book context of what Matthew 4 is talking about. And what I found in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew 2 and Matthew 3 and the beginning of Matthew 4, I thought was just beautiful and I wanted to share it with you this morning. I found 20 different pictures of this man named Jesus in just these four chapters They reveal a stunning picture of who the me is. I mean, you just start off with a bang in Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's There's four pictures of Jesus in just this one verse. It tells us in his name, Jesus, that he is our Savior. That's what Jesus means. Jesus is the Savior to all who give their life to him. Jesus is the one and only. The second thing we see it in the moniker he is best known for. He is called Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. Christ is not his last name. In case you didn't know, his, last, his that moniker just means that he's the promised one of Israel, the Messiah. He has come to save their people, his people. It also tells us that he is the son of David, number three. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the promised king to rule over all of his people. We don't worship just a lowly carpenter. We worship the king of kings. (laughs) Jesus is also the son of Abraham. What a a beautiful picture. It's like Matthew is connecting the oldest stories in God's word to this man that was standing in front of him. He's connecting Jesus to the very beginning of God's people. Jesus is the son of Abraham. But if you read the rest of the chapter, Matthew chapter 1, what you'll get is a lineage. And Matthew is trying to point that all of history has led to this point. This chapter follows up with a long list of names revealing that everyone and everything in the Old Testament points to this man named Jesus. Jesus is the center of history. You aren't the center of history. I am not the center of history. The United States of America isn't the center of history. Friend, empires and kingdoms have come and gone. Presidents, dictators, rulers, kings and queens have come and gone. And at the center of it all, there's one man. Jesus Christ. Think about this. At the end of Matthew chapter 1, it tells us, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So we have Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of David, Jesus the Son of Abraham, and Jesus the center of all history. But Matthew 1 ends with the fact that Jesus is not just fully human, but Jesus is fully divine Jesus was fully God and fully man the most extraordinary miracle in the history of time that God chose to put on human flesh like you and me and still stayed God at the exact same time the incarnation preaches a powerful message and it simply preaches I am here with you So Jesus is fully human and fully divine. If you jump over to chapter 2, we see a number of things that picture our Savior. It starts off with the story of the wise men, and it reveals that Jesus is the sovereign over the wise. The magi come from far away in the east looking for the king, the sovereign one. And when they find him, they bow in worship to him at his makeshift Crib. Could you imagine? Even as a toddler, even as a baby, his sovereignty was praised and worshipped. Listen, we've got some wonderful children in our nursery this morning, but I promise you, not a one of them is worthy of worship. They may need to be changed every now and then, but you will not worship them while you're changing that diaper. Come on. But here are these magi worshiping him as king, even before he turned the age of two. But as you read that, you also go through in chapter number two, you see Jesus is a shepherd of the weak. Matthew quotes from Micah, chapter number five, to show God's people that he will rule as a good and lowly and meek shepherd. Don't you love it? The sovereign of the wise is also the shepherd of the weak. Whew. But then as you read the passage, you'll see that they have to escape because of Herod and what he does. But you get this idea of Jesus as the new exodus. The imagery is clear. Jesus goes into Egypt to escape all kinds of judgment. And he leaves Egypt a few years later, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy as he does. It's a picture of the rescue and the redemption that he would bring to all people. Jesus ends this mournful exile. The picture of the chapter is beautiful. Jesus has come, the Messiah is here, and he is the hope of Israel and the entire world. The chapter ends with one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus. Jesus loves his fiercest enemies. By the time you get to the end of chapter 2, you realize that Jesus has come to save people, even people who tried to kill him. Jesus loves sinners and that's good news for you and for me. If you go into Matthew chapter 3, we see four more pictures of our Savior. We see at the beginning that Jesus is the Redeemer King. John the Baptist declares that the King is coming and he will make new all who repent and believe in him. He is not just the King, he is our Redeemer King. It goes on and tells us that he is also the righteous judge. John the Baptist tells us that uh, Jesus will carry a winnowing fork. It is in His hand. All who do not repent will face the judgments of the fires of hell. At his baptism in Matthew chapter three, we see that Jesus was filled with God the Spirit with that beautiful picture of the dove resulting being resting on Jesus. And then we hear the words of God the Father booming, where it declares His love for his son. So we see Jesus is filled with God the Spirit and he is dearly loved by God the Father. In chapter number 4 we see at least four pictures of Jesus as we get to this passage. We see that Jesus is the new Adam. After the baptism, whenever you have a mountaintop experience, here comes the devil. Because at the beginning of Matthew 4 we see the temptation of Jesus. And Jesus is pictured here as the brand new Adam. Meaning Where the old man fell into temptation with Satan, Jesus stood strong. Jesus did what no one else in Himian history could ever do. He resisted temptation fully. He did not give in to sin one time. We also see in that story that Jesus is the true Israel, meaning Jesus is the faithful son who will conquer sin and give those who believe in him perfect peace. And then Jesus is the light of the world. Look at verses 14 and 16 leading up to the passage that we read. Matthew quotes from Isaiah and reveals that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And that light is the Savior of the world, the Redeemer King. It's Jesus. And then it ends right before we get to our passage. We see that Jesus is the hope of all nations. He goes to Galilee, where Gentiles lived. And it was here first that he reveals himself to anyone, showing us that he doesn't just care for Israel, his own people, but he cares for people of every nation and tongue. Do you see who this portrait of Jesus is? In such a way that when we get to verse 19 of Matthew, and he looks at four fishermen and says, follow me. That we need to feel the weight and the wonder of the one who is the one that's talking and calling and projecting and speaking to these disciples. This is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the promised one to come in the kingly line of David. The father of God's people. He is fully human, fully divine. The one in whom wise men will worship and nations will bow. His birth ushers in the culmination of generations of prophecy and anticipation. He is the center of history, God in the flesh, our redeemer, king, and righteous judge, perfectly filled with God the Spirit and perfectly loved by God the Father, the only man to ever conquer sin, the light of the world, and the hope of all nations. Do we realize who Jesus is? Because when we do, we will realize that Jesus is clearly worthy of more than casual adherence and cultural association. We cannot reduce Jesus to a poor, puny Savior who is begging people in the 21st century to accept him into their hearts and just kind of associate with them on the side of their lives. Accept him? Accept him? As if Jesus needs to be accepted by us. Jesus doesn't need your acceptance. He doesn't need my acceptance. Jesus is infinite, all-powerful omniscient. Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor of every created thing in the universe. Jesus doesn't need us at all we need him god help us to stop patronizing the god of the universe jesus he is worthy of far more than casual adherence and cultural association that's the me that we're talking about today this is jesus number two So we know who the me is. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. Let us stop playing religious games. We're talking about the Savior King of the universe, the righteous judge of all nations, God in the flesh, and he's the one that says, follow me. That thought alone is baffling and mind-boggling. This Jesus comes to you, and he tells you, follow me. Friend, there is no potential, casual response here. It is either turn and run or bow and worship. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter number 5, when Peter realizes who this Jesus is, he falls on his face in worship. Everything would be different in these men's lives because of this encounter with Jesus. I mean, just look at verse number 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus says, repent. That word repent means to turn from the direction you were walking and to begin going in a new and different direction. It means to renounce one's way of life for a completely new way of life. We're giving up everything about us to serve this one that said follow Think about what Jesus said in Luke 14. It says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all, that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. The word forsake means to completely renounce. This is exactly what we see in Matthew 14 with these fishermen. They immediately leave their nets and follow Jesus. And they also left their father along the way. They were leaving behind many things Let me give you some of the things. They left behind their comfort. They left behind everything that was familiar to them, everything that felt natural to them, and they left it for uncertainty. Notice when Jesus tells them to follow him, he never said, Where we're going. He just told them who would be with them follow me. Did you catch that? Followers of Jesus don't always know where they're going. But they should always know who they're with. And that should be enough. They gave up their careers. This was a complete abandonment of the profession they've been training for their entire lives. They gave up their entire possessions. Now, listen, these men were not among the economically elite, but they had a boat and they had nets, which showed that they were successful fishermen in their trade. They had much to lose in following Jesus and at this moment, they followed Jesus with nothing in their hands. They lost their positions. It is one thing that Jesus' disciples were set apart from other disciples in that day. Most who would follow a rabbi in that day would ask the rabbi if they could follow them. It was a status symbol. It was self-promotion. If you were accepted by that rabbi, you were seen as one of the religious elite. But for these young men... This would have been a step down because nobody knew who Jesus was at this time. They left their families. It tells us here that James and John in this passage leave their father. They get much less time with family regardless. But in Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells potential disciples, if you follow me, don't even go back and say goodbye to your family. They leave their safety. This is a rabbi teacher who would soon say to these men, I send you out like sheep in the middle of wolves. All men will hate you because of me. They will persecute you. They leave their sin. This is the core of what it means to repent, to give up sin and follow Jesus. It's a shame that this even needs to be listed. But in order to follow Jesus, you had to give up your sins. And they give up themselves. This is the passage that would become central for any prospective follower of Jesus. Look at Luke 9. And he said to them all, oh, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a definition of what Jesus means to follow Jesus. This is it. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. In a world where everything else revolves around yourself, please listen. We all need to hear it. When a world in which we've created everything, revolves around ourselves. We promote ourselves, preserve ourselves. We entertain ourselves. We comfort ourselves. We take care of ourselves. And then there's a church culture present in most American churches that tries to make Christianity as safe for you as possible. But the author of Christianity says that we should crucify ourselves. Don't buy what the culture is selling So many people have bought it, including many people in this room. The idea that all you need to do is make a decision, sign a card, and say a prayer. And then you're a Christian. Then you get to keep your old lifestyle until you get to heaven. It's not true. It's not following Jesus. All you did was write your name on a piece of paper and then you continue to do what you wanted to do. That isn't being a Christian, it's the exact opposite. And it's going to be people like that that get to heaven and then they're shocked that they're not going to get to go in. To become a follower of Jesus, you lose your life. Let me be careful here. I am not saying that people in this room are being called to sell everything they have and move to Kathmandu to minister in solidarity with no earthly pleasures. But what I am trying to say to you is when you follow Jesus, our priorities tangibly change. And for some of us, it does mean we give up everything. To follow him. Think about it. Our comfort is no longer our concern. Who cares what temperature it is in here? Let us go out and change the world with the gospel. Our careers now revolve around what Jesus calls us to do. Listen to me. God has given you one life. And if you live your entire life just for the American dream to retire when you're 65 and go live on a beach somewhere and spend the rest of your days collecting seashells, you have fallen short for what God has created you to do. Our life revolves, our careers revolve around what Jesus has called us to do. Wherever he wants to use us, our careers are now used for the good of others and the spread of the gospel. Possessions. Listen. These possessions aren't our own. We should realize how um, fleeting they are here one day and gone the next. We no longer live for material possessions. We forsake material pleasures in this world for eternal treasures in the world to come. Position, this is not our priority. Our position is simply I'm a child of God and I'm trying to follow Jesus. Our families, we are commanded to honor our parents and to love our spouses. So you can't use passages like this to be a lousy family member or friend. But our love for Jesus, listen to me, should make the love we have for our closest family members seem like hate. I'm not the one that said that. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 10. Safety. This is no longer a priority. We go where he wants us to go. Did you hear me? We go where he wants us to go. Can I ask you a question? This morning, if Jesus showed up and said, Hey, are you willing to pack your bags and move permanently into the Middle East for the spread of the gospel? If Jesus tells you to do that, would you go? If not, let me ask you a follow up question What makes you think you're following Jesus this morning? Can I just be honest? I would be shocked if any of you went because we can't get most of you to work in our children's ministry. Ooh, it got quiet. We can't get most of you to work in our nursery. Poor Wesley, you can't find a worker on Wednesdays. We have kids' classes every Wednesday. and One worker every Wednesday. Because followers of Jesus have sacrificed their rights to determine the direction of their life. Can I repeat that? Followers of Jesus have sacrificed the right to determine the direction. Of their life. Followers of Jesus don't call the shots anymore. Jesus calls the shots. This is basic Christianity. Look at, look at that verse again. He said to who? Them all. And then he says, if any man will come after me. Jesus said anyone Anyone that follows Jesus, they have to deny himself and take up the cross. Hear me. This is for every Christian who claims to be Christian. The fact that this may sound like such a big commitment shows how much our American Christian culture has diluted the initial surrender to Christ. Look at Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live is in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know a missionary couple who came to Southwest Baptist Church. They're serving in Jordan. And they told me that they were told by their families and friends, many of whom were professing believers, that they were being reckless with their lives and their grandkids. He told me that he said to them, in light of the three billion people who make up the unreached people groups living without the gospel, on a road that ends in hell, and no one has told them how to get to heaven through Jesus, he looked at his family members and said, we must go. The fact that three billion people haven't been reached yet is evidence that the Christian church, the American Christian church, Our church is in far greater danger of being safe than we ever will be of being reckless. In danger of being safe. Followers of Jesus. We don't bow at the altar of safety and comfort. As followers of Jesus. We die to sin, we die to the world, and we die to ourselves. And we give our lives to God as a blank check. Write it out however you will. If this sounds extreme, don't forget who the me is. To leave and to lay down everything in your life doesn't make sense until you realize who Jesus is. But when you realize who Jesus is, leaving behind and laying down everything else in the, is the only thing that does make sense. Do you remember Matthew 13, 44? We have it on the screen. Beautiful. Again, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. What a picture. He's walking through a field and stumbles on a treasure. No one else knows it's there, but he realizes how valuable this treasure is. More valuable than everything else he has put together in his lifetime. So, what does he do? He sells everything he has so he can buy this field. But he also does it with joy, the Bible says. Can you imagine the conversation he had with family and friends? What are you doing? Well, I want to buy a field. You're being reckless. He smiles and says, I got a hunch. Why? Inside he knows that he actually has found something that is worth losing everything else in order to get. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is someone who is worth losing everything else for. Jesus is worthy of more than cultural Christianity. self-promotion let me give you the first part of a sentence we're going to build on this as we go through the month of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus It's on your screen biblically to be a disciple of Jesus is to trust and obey his leadership of course to be a disciple of Jesus is to trust and obey him it makes no sense to say I'm a follower of Jesus and not be willing to follow him right It's absolutely absurd. We will trust him to save our souls once we die, but we don't trust him to lead our lives until we die? This is absurdity. And you know what is labeled? Cultural Christianity. And some of us in this room are guilty of such. To follow Jesus simply means I will obey what he has told me to do. I will follow him. Will I mess up from time to time? Of course, but I will become better and better at following him as I mature in the faith. Let's take a test. This is not everything that a Christian should be obeying, but these are the most fundamental. Listen, if you're gonna follow Jesus, you have to start here. This is it. If we're gonna start following Jesus, this is the first step. Can I take a test? Grade yourself? Number one, I will be a faithful part of church. I mean, it's up there. That's not my words, that's the Bible. I will not just go to church. I will be a part of the church. I will be a member of the church. I will be a partner with the church. I will work with the church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It tells us that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves. Can I ask, are you a follower of Jesus and you don't even follow him to church on a regular basis? How can you say one when you do the other? Ooh, I got quiet. How about this? We will faithfully give. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And who which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. Can we get that next verse up? And then one more. And God is able... To make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. What is the Apostle Paul saying? That Christians that have been given such a wonderful grace of salvation should also bountifully give from what God has blessed them with. Are you a follower of Jesus? Or is that your money? We're supposed to be a witness. Y'all know what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that Jesus looked at his disciples and said that ye shall be witnesses to me when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And you will take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, to other parts of the earth. We will study scripture, pray, memorize scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15 says study to show yourself approved. A workman man not to know. And then it says in Psalm 119 that we should hide God's word in our hearts that we don't sin against him. May I ask, have you been faithfully a part of a church? Have you faithfully given to God's work in spreading the gospel? Are you a witness to people around you of the saving grace that God has given to you? Do you study scripture? Do you pray? Do you memorize scripture? How about this last one? Ephesians 4:32 says, and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. This is elementary, the first step of following Jesus. And because of cultural Christianity, we look at these things and say, no, too much. How in the world do you think we get the right to look at Jesus and say, no, that's my time. No, that's my money. How, how can we look at the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and say, this is my life, you can't have it. If you can even think of saying such things, you are not a follower of Jesus this morning. And if you have claimed to be a Christian and you haven't been doing those things, can I ask, can you literally look at me in the eyes and say, preacher, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. Friend, there's going to be a day When we stand in front of him. And it's not going to matter. How good we think we are today. We'll know just how sinful we are then. And I can't hardly handle. The thought. Of a church member. Of a church that I love. Dying in a religious game. And going to hell for eternity. Listen to me. Don't let cultural Christianity preach a louder message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'll cost you to follow Jesus, it won't cost you a little, it will cost you everything. Here's what boggles my mind. After this sermon, some of the people that will shake my hand and say good sermon are the same people that are going to split hell wide open someday. I don't need to hear that today's sermon was a good sermon. You need to hear that Jesus is the only way, and giving your life to him is going to change everything in your life. And if it hasn't, you haven't accepted Jesus because he doesn't need to be. But Jesus won't accept you on that day. Are you a faithful part of church? We're having an offering. Do you faithfully give? Are you a witness? Do you study, pray, and memorize? Do you Are you kind and forgiving? Friend, that's the first step very first one. Will you please stand?